Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that your word is our heritage forever. It is the joy of our hearts to have your word before us even now. Lord, we pray that you would help us to rejoice in it all the more as we listen to it and hear it explained. Lord, we pray that your word be become even more precious to us as a result of studying it together this morning. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, after a bit of a break while I've been away overseas in Israel, in the land of Israel, I've come back and I've picking, we're picking up today where I left off before I went, which is in the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 14, which is concerned primarily with the kingship of Israel, the early stages of the kingship of Israel. The Israelites came out from Egypt many years earlier under the leadership of Moses. They came out and eventually they end up in the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. They had a series of judges who looked after them. But then Israel started to cry out for a king. They wanted a king to go with them and conquer their enemies, particularly the Philistines. The Israelites are becoming more and more conscious of other people attacking them and the Philistines in particular. And so they want a king to to lead them in battle. And so God says, yes, I will give you a king then. And he gives them Saul. And Saul is the person that we've been studying together. And we've seen that Saul looks good at first, but has started to show his true colours and a lack of faith in God. And that's what we looked at last time, if you can remember way back uh, to the end of December, uh, that we looked at Saul and how he had disobeyed God's word. He had disobeyed God's word. He had not kept God's word. And as a result, uh, the Israelites and Samuel have abandoned Saul. We saw that back in chapter 13, verse 15, uh, that Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin, and Saul counted the men who were with him, and they numbered about 600. He initially had about 3,000 men. We saw in verse uh, 2 of chapter 13, Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, and then 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with his son Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. And so he had these 3,000 men, but then because of his disobedience to God's word, his army had dwindled down to 600 men. And even worse, uh, for those men that are still with him, we saw that they didn't even have proper tools with which to go into battle. They didn't have weapons. We saw that last time we looked at the passage in chapter 13. Uh, we saw that uh, not a blacksmith could be found in verse 19 of chapter 13 in the whole land of Israel, because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. And so Israel is uh, having all their, we uh, their, their farming implements sharpened by the Philistines. And on the, as a result, in verse 22 of chapter 13, it says, So on the day of battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his Jonathan had them. And that's where we left off last time. We looked at this king, how he had gone from one problem to another and particularly been disobedient. And so now he is facing the enemy with a very small army in comparison to what he had and an ill-equipped army. And then in chapter 14, Jonathan, his son, starts to uh, become the focus of attention. We start to look at uh, Jonathan as the narrative continues. And it's an interesting account about Jonathan. Uh, we see how Jonathan, firstly, goes off to attack the Philistines on his own. We see that in verse 1 of chapter 14. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armour, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. 
And while he's away trying to fight the Philistines on his own, he comes up with this sign that the Lord will give him victory. As he's wanting to fight these Philistines and defeat them, we read in verse 8 that he says to his armour bearer, come then, we will cross over toward the men and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So Jonathan realises his predicament, that this is very difficult to take on the Philistine army with just him and his armour bearer, but he comes up with this sign that the Lord will grant him success in fighting the Philistines. By the way that the Philistines will respond to the sight of, the, of Jonathan and his armour bearer, they will then know whether God is going to give the Philistines into their hands. And what happens? Well, we see that the Lord does give the Philistines into the hands of Jonathan and his armour bearer. They come up in verse uh, 13. Verse 13 says, Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armour bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armour bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armour bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. And not only is victory given to Jonathan and his armour bearer, but we see that victory is given to the Israelite army as well, that they have a great victory upon the, Israelite, uh, upon the Philistines that day. And so that the summary statement in verse 23 of chapter 14 is that the Lord rescued Israel that day and the battle moved on beyond Beth-Avon. Now, what can we learn from this passage? What are some lessons that we could have? Well, there's a number of things that we could focus on this morning, and particularly the faith of Jonathan here in the Lord in comparison to his father, Saul. We've seen how Saul's faith in God is not what it should be, but we see here that Jonathan is a bit different from his father, or even more so that he stands out quite starkly to his, in comparison to his father. But I thought this morning I wanted to focus on one particular aspect of Jonathan's faith, and that is the way that he sought to know God's will. The way that he sought to know God's will. The way that he said, this will be a sign if something particular happens, and that's how we will know that God has given the Philistines into our hands. And this is not the only time that something like this occurs in the Bible. If you know your Bibles reasonably well, you can think easily of some other occasions where someone does something like this. Think of Gideon in Judges chapter 6 with the fleece that he puts out, and it's meant to be dry one time and wet the next, uh, based on whether the ground around it is wet or dry. Uh, we can think of Abraham's servant who he sends to get a wife for his uh, son Isaac and he says if this girl comes and offers to give water to my camels well then that will be the girl that my master's son shall marry and also we see the the practice of casting lots in the Old Testament on a number of different occasions uh, one of the most notable ones is when the sailors are trying to work out uh, who has caused uh, their boat in the book of Jonah to be swamped and the lot is cast and it turns out that Jonah is the one according to the lot who has caused this great storm to come to them at sea and even we saw in the book of Samuel that Saul was selected as king by casting lots he was chosen by the lot and in the New Testament, the only example that I can think of of casting lots is, of course, with the replacement for Judas. When Judas hangs himself, uh, the disciples say, we need a replacement, we need 12. Uh, and who is the person that we'll have? Well, they look at the different disciples that were following Jesus uh, from the ministry of John the Baptist through to uh, Jesus' death and resurrection, and they come up with two 
and Matthias is chosen in Acts chapter 1 by Lot. So it's something that we do see in the Bible. And if you're like me, you may want to know if you can do something similar, if you can put out a fleece, if you can come up with a sign in order to know God's will. Why would you want to do that? Well, life is full of decisions. And we learn at a young age that decisions have consequences, and some have very severe consequences. We learn this from a very young age. A toddler crying in the evening may get to watch more television or may get sent to bed earlier than expected as a result of the decision to cry. To cry or not to cry, that is the question for a toddler, and the toddler soon learns that it has consequences. The decision that I make, if I cry or don't cry, it can have severe consequences. But of course, we face many bigger questions in our lifetime than having a tantrum over television. We face questions of which career shall I choose? Whom do I marry? How many children should I have? Should I adopt a dog or a cat? Do I diet? Do I exercise? Should I move house? Should I emigrate? Should I enter into full-time ministry? Should I examine whether Christianity is true or not? Is Christianity true? How do I know from God the answer to these questions? Why do we consider these to be the bigger questions of life? Well, it's because of a lot of pain or joy can result from each decision. Some decisions are even life-threatening, depending on what country you might want to move to. One of the things that I'm very thankful for about being in Australia after going overseas is the, 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 the way that this country is relatively safe in comparison to other countries where there are machine guns held by someone every other street corner. There are people walking around with these guns. And so you recognise that some countries aren't as safe as Australia is. And so some of these decisions, if you want to immigrate, it can come with fatal consequences based on what you decide. Or of course, when it comes to deciding whether Christianity is true or not, it can have pain for all eternity. It's not just life-threatening, it's soul-threatening for all eternity if you choose the wrong decision, if you make the wrong decision. So what can Christians do? Can we come up with a so-called sign like Jonathan did in 1 Samuel 14 as we try to discern what are the answers to some of these big questions of life? And some notable Christians have actually done this. Some have been very consistent in casting the lot in lots of situations. John Wesley is one who stands out in church history. He loved casting the lots as to whether he should go as an evangelist to a particular country or his friend should go. He told George Whitfield, don't go to North America because I've cast the lots and it says no, that you shouldn't go. He, he did it quite a lot to try and work out what God wanted to, him to do with the decisions that he was faced with. But should we discern the Lord's will with signs, staking everything on whether it rains or snows today, or whether we should flip coins or ask a magic eight ball the answer to our questions and know that God does govern the lot. And so, yes, he does have control of the magic eight ball. So we can discern what God would have us do in response to a particular situation that we face. Well, my counsel to you is that I would be very cautious about looking for God's will in signs and casting lots and flipping coins. I'm not going to give you an exhaustive sermon here this morning on God's will and decision-making. If you want to have a more exhaustive treatment of it, one of my favourite books on the subject is Frisian's book, Decision-Making and the Will of God. 
It used to be on the church library. It doesn't seem to be there at this stage. If you've got it, please bring it back if you've had it for an extended period of time. But otherwise, uh, you can pick it up at every good Christian bookstore. It is very exhaustive on God's will and looking at uh, decision-making and guidance. That's more of an exhaustive treatment. But for this morning, I just wanted to urge you to be cautious when it comes to trying to follow someone like Jonathan in the Bible and discern God's will by using signs and lots and flipping coins. Now, why would I urge you to be cautious? Well, firstly, it can be very difficult to know whether God is, in fact, revealing his will to you by certain events that may be happening in your life. Even this passage doesn't directly tell us that Jonathan's proposed sign was from God. Yes, the outcome came through, and he interpreted it as being a sign from God. And God did indeed rout the Philistines using Jonathan and his armor bearer and then the Israelite army. But it doesn't say directly that God gave him that sign. And yes, God does control the lot. He does control the flip of a coin. He does control the weather. But we understand that Others can also give so-called signs as well, that God may permit Satan to govern the flip of a coin or even use greater signs. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, we read, The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. Satan is quite capable of giving you a sign as well that you then interpret as being from God, but it's not, it's actually from Satan. And humans can influence a particular sign for a particular outcome as well. We can tip the odds in the favour of the one that we want. You're proposing it's a sign if God brings snow in London is very different from if he brings snow in Sydney. And so you can put forward something or you can say, if it rains today and it's pouring rain outside at the moment, then God wants me to do this. Well, then you've obviously tipped the odds in your favour. And, of course, people can give great signs as well. The Lord can permit them to do so. Uh, We read in Matthew chapter 24 where the Lord Jesus warns, For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. And so humans can influence us with signs and lead us astray. And if we're following Satan's will or the will of sinful humans rather than God's will, well, then we're really in trouble. No matter how sincerely we may think that it is a sign from the Lord, it is a dangerous game to play. That's my first reason why I would encourage you to be cautious, because it's exceedingly difficult to know whether God is actually revealing his will in a particular sign. Second reason is Jesus warns against asking God for signs. Uh, When tempted, Jesus said to Satan, we read it in Matthew chapter 4, what did he say? Satan asked him for a sign. He said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And Jesus rebuked those who asked for a sign. He says, a wicked, and and this is in Matthew chapter 12, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Now, why would he say that? Well, he says that there's a sign that's already given, and that is that the Son of Man was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That is, we have a sign from him, and that is his resurrection, to know that he is indeed the Messiah, and we should trust in him, which is what the people were asking for him on that occasion. And then the third reason why I think 
We should not be looking for signs from God in weather events or actions of others or flipping coins or casting lots. It's because God has given us his will. He has given us his will. He has revealed his will to us in the scriptures. And the scriptures are able to help us make all the decisions that we face in this life. The Apostle Paul says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what he says about scripture. What does he say? Does Paul say partially equipped, that the man of God may be partially equipped? No, he says that he will be thoroughly equipped, completely equipped. He will be complete Does Paul say for some good works that he will be equipped? For some decisions, the word of God is helpful? No, it says for every good work, the scripture equips the man of God. And Samuel himself teaches that the importance of listening to God's word. We saw that back in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Why did Saul go astray? Because he didn't listen to God's word. Not because he was misreading different signs, no, because he didn't listen to God's word. He lost the kingdom because he didn't listen to God's word. And Jesus himself sets an example by leaning on scripture in temptation in Matthew chapter 4 when he was tempted by Satan. What did he respond to the devil with? He responded with scripture. He responded with the revealed will that was already given to him. He didn't need a sign to know that he shouldn't bow down to Satan. He had scripture that told him to serve the Lord, worship the Lord himself alone. And so I think most of us here understand the sufficiency of Scripture deep down and know that we don't need signs to make the decisions of this life. Imagine if I said that at elders' meetings, I'll let you into a secret, what we do at elders' meetings, we flip a coin for every decision that we make. How would you feel? Would you trust the elders of this church If you knew that we were just flipping coins at every elders' meeting for every decision we made, or would you want elders who are governing their decisions according to the word, that are opening the word and making decisions based on their understanding of Scripture and realising that Scripture is indeed going to thoroughly equip us for every good work, every good work that we seek to do at this church, that Scripture has something to say and guide us to make those decisions. But you may be saying this morning, the Bible's a big book. I have so many big decisions. Is it really possible to know God's will in every decision? Well, the answer is yes. God's will in most decisions is actually pretty obvious. Love God, love your neighbour as yourself. That sums up the law, the commandments. If you keep those two principles in mind, you can make most decisions fairly easily and know what God would have you do. You don't need to flip a coin, to know what to do, if you know that you're to love God and love your neighbour as yourself. But we're best equipped if we read and study the Bible regularly. Now, you may say, do I have help in understanding God's will? It is a big book. How can I have help to do so? And the answer is yes, God has given his spirit to help you understand this word. You're not alone. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 12 says, We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. If you are a Christian, God has given you his spirit so that when you open this book, you can understand God's will as you make the decisions that you face in your life. 
And so therefore you can come to God and ask for his help. As you look at his word, you ask for him to reveal what you should do in each and every decision. And James encourages us to do so. James chapter 1 verse 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, is that anyone in this room this morning? I've got to put my hand up for that. If anyone lacks wisdom, what should you do? He should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. God gives his spirit in abundance and that wise spirit reveals from the spirit-filled word as to what you should do in each and every situation. But also, he doesn't just give you the help of the Holy Spirit. He also gives you the help within yourself. He gives you help by giving you spirit-filled Christians around you who know the scriptures, sometimes far better than you, or at least know certain parts of the scripture better than you, and so they can help you as you make the decisions that you're faced with. Proverbs 15 verse 22 says, Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. Plans can succeed if you have many advisors. Now, where do you find many advisors to help you as you make your decisions in your life? Well, it's at a local church. You can find help in books and sermons, of course, but at a local church is the gathering of God's people where you can come around people who are spirit-filled and know the spirit-filled scriptures and can then help you to make the decisions that you're faced with. It always amazes me when I see people make daft decisions and have a lot of pain as a result of those decisions if, and they could have been saved from that pain if they'd simply asked a fellow Christian at their local church what they should do in that situation according to Scripture. It is a wonderful blessing that God gives you local churches, that he gives you people who know the Bible, know the Bible often better than you, and you can actually ask them for help in making decisions. And so many bad decisions can be prevented if you will simply join a local church and get to know your brothers and sisters in Christ, and when faced with very difficult decisions, ask for help. So we can make decisions without the need for flipping coins or looking for signs according to weather or what people will say to you as Jonathan did so many years ago, we can make decisions. For little decisions, the spirit gives us great freedom. Red socks or blue socks in the morning, it's up to you. He gives you freedom as to what you decide in that matter. And for the big decisions, you can weigh up the options with scripture. Rarely do we face two equally valid propositions for the big questions of life. When considering marrying Betty or Veronica, they'll never be identical. So you need to weigh them up, not weigh them literally. Uh, they probably wouldn't appreciate that, but weigh up their attributes, weigh up the things about them, and then make a decision based on scripture being held up and you viewing Betty and Veronica through the lens of scripture. So when faced with the big decisions in life, do you go to scripture or a coin? Do you go to scripture or a coin? If you choose the coin, do you realize what you're saying about the Bible? Insufficient. That's what you're saying. If you're looking for signs, for flipping of coins to know God's will, you're saying, your word is insufficient, God, in making this decision. And so you may as well carve that into the cover of your Bible. 
insufficient across it if you are looking for signs in making decisions or carry a coin rather than your Bible and you can discern God's will that way. But the thing is, you can never really know for sure whether God is revealing his will by whether it's heads or tails. So I encourage you this morning, don't consider the Bible as insufficient. Don't choose a coin. Make decisions according to God's spirit-filled word, the God-breathed word. Don't ignore it. Don't reject it because you don't like what it says and prefer to flip a coin. I think that's a case for a lot of people. They read, love your enemies, and they say, oh, I'll flip a coin to see whether he means this enemy in particular, rather than just saying, oh, that's what he wants me to do. Oh, no, I can discern God's will that might be against scripture. Many people just don't like what it says, and so they'd much rather look at the stars, look at the weather, so that the will of God is a bit more palatable to them. And then learn to rejoice. Use the scripture and learn to rejoice in the revealed will of God in scripture. Why rejoice? Because you know you are doing the will of God, not possibly doing the will of God. You are doing the will of God if you follow scripture, if you do what it says. But you may say this morning, what about when I made a decision? and then great pain results. Our enemy triumphs, or Veronica turns out to be quite nasty, whereas unmarried Betty is still sweeter than ever. What do you do in that situation? You think you made the decision according to scripture, and it turns out the decision has come with great pain. Well, that's where we fall back upon God's sovereignty and that wonderful verse, Romans 8, 28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Yes, we have responsibilities for our decisions, and we are to live with the consequences of those decisions. But we also know that God allows bad, painful decisions for our ultimate good if we love him. And we also know that he allows good, painful decisions for our ultimate good if we love him. Sometimes doing God's will means your enemy triumphs. But God uses that for our ultimate good, not simply the good that we would like to see in a particular situation. We have the sign of Jonah that the Lord Jesus promised. We have that sign of Jonah that tells us that we will be victorious in the end and that all things work for our good. What was that sign of Jonah? That Jesus was in the heart of the earth and then raised. And so we see the victory that we have in Christ's resurrection. Yes, we may lose battles and we may lose them after making right decisions according to Scripture, doing what God's will is and the enemy triumphs. But we know that the victory is ours. The war is won because Christ was in the heart of the earth but has been raised. The sign of Jonah has been given to us. And so we fall back upon that even in the midst of the pain that we may experience after doing the revealed will of God according to Scripture. And so I think Jonathan actually sets us the example there. He sets us one example there that we may wish to follow, but I would be cautious about it. But what do we read in verse 6 about Jonathan? Verse 6, chapter 14, verse 6. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf 
Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Look at the faith of Jonathan there that underpins that desire for a sign from God. And that's what we fall back on, not on signs, but ultimately that faith that we have in the God who can save, whether by many or by few. And he has saved us. And so we can go through life with a peace and a joy as we follow his will revealed in scripture, knowing that we are saved because of the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to make a word of caution to you who are sitting here this morning about that promise, that all things work for good. It's only for those who love him, only for those who love God is the victory won. The flip Flipping of that verse would be then that all things work for your destruction as one who doesn't love God. If you are sitting here this morning and don't love God, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your saviour, if you've never believed that he was in the heart of the earth and was raised one day so many years ago, then all things work for your destruction, not your good. And that is a terrible place to be. Examine your heart, examine your heart and ask yourself, don't I want all things to work for my good? Even the painful experiences that I may go through this week, I want to believe that they are working for my good because I know that Jesus has been raised from the dead and one day he will raise my mortal body to a state of immortality and I will reign with him in heaven, in paradise itself. I encourage you if you do not love God, you do not love his son, you do not believe in Jesus Christ, then I want you to concentrate on the sign of Jonah. Dig deep into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Read the accounts that we have of Christ's resurrection. That is a sign he has given you. And it's about the most important decision that you can make. It is the most important decision that you can make as to whether you believe in Jesus Christ or you continue in a state of unbelief. As for the rest of the will of God, as to what he would do, whether he wants you to marry this person or get a particular job or, or, or immigrate, get a cat or a dog, forget all those things. Concentrate on the greatest decision you can make with your life, and that is to trust in Jesus. And do it so that then you can have that peace and that joy that the people of this church have, that they know that the victory is won that the battles may come and we may lose some of those, but the victory is won and all things work for our good because we love him and are being called according to his purpose. Let's come to God in prayer. Let's speak with him. Heavenly Father, we praise you as a God who speaks. And so we thank you for revealing your will to us in scripture. We do not deserve it, O God. And we come before you and ask for forgiveness for wanting more from you than your perfectly sufficient word. And so, Lord, we come before you and ask for forgiveness and ask for your help to study your word on our own and with others so that we can joyfully live according to your will and not seek signs like a wicked and adulterous generation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.